right, Jesus has just begun his uh, public ministry in, in Galilee, and so uh, we're going to pick up here in um, verse 16, going through 20. Let me just move that, lest I forget. Passing alongside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in their boat, mending their nets. And immediately, yeah, immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired hands and followed him. Let's pray. Father, as we listen to your word, I ask that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Uh, Do this so that we will walk in a manner worthy of Christ, a way that bears fruit and good works and increases our knowledge of you. Strengthen us with all power for endurance and patience with joy, knowing that you've delivered us from darkness, and to the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whose name we pray, amen. John Scully shot up the corporate chart of responsibility. He started working in 1977 for PepsiCo in the bottling division. By 1979, he was the youngest VP of marketing at the age of 30. You might recognize him if you're a little bit older like me from uh, some of the things that he initiated while he was the VP of marketing. Pepsi Generation became one of the slogans that they they, uh, put out. You see, until this time, Pepsi was content to kind of let Coke sit there at the hierarchy of uh, sodas. And uh, they decided, you know what? We want more of this market share. And so John Scully was one of the people who decided to make that attack upon the market share of Coca-Cola. And the first salvo was Pepsi Generation. The next salvo was the Pepsi Challenge. And John Scully was a part of that as well. And you probably remember all of those commercials where they had the people sitting and tasting both Pepsi and Coke and deciding that Pepsi was better. Except for John Scully. He actually preferred the taste of Coke. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> At least that's what I've been told anyway. But he didn't, he wasn't just, uh, his success with the, that division of PepsiCo uh, led them to say, hey, you know, we've got this um, other division, Frito-Lay, that really is struggling and is losing money year after year after year. And so John became the person who turned Frito-Lay around so that it began to make money. And so we find that he becomes Pepsi's youngest president in 1977. A few years later, Steve Jobs knocks on his door, metaphorically speaking. And in a conversation that they have, Steve Jobs says to him, Do you want to sell sugared water for the rest of your life? Or do you want to come with me? 
change the world. That's pretty bold talk from Steve Jobs right there. And we're seeing even bolder words from the mouth of Jesus. Because he's going to speak to men um, about having their worlds changed as well as changing the world. Mark shifts in his account from the very public ministry of Jesus in the region of Galilee. Uh, Let's not imagine for a moment that all Jesus said was, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe. Uh, That's a summary statement for what he taught um, that Mark utilizes. But Jesus, uh, well, Mark shifts from that public ministry of Jesus, and now he's going to talk a little bit about the personal ministry of Jesus, uh, moving away from the crowds and more to the one-on-one types of relationships that Jesus has. And as I read this, one of the questions that came to my mind, and maybe it came to yours and maybe it didn't, but this is the one I'm asking anyway, is that if you were a king looking to build a kingdom, who would you choose to join you? I think that's a fairly fair question, since Jesus is the herald of a new kingdom that's breaking in upon the Israelites. Who would he single out and ask to join him? Jesus is here by the Sea of Galilee. He's, uh, he's kind of moved so farther inland, but finds himself at a sea. It's kind of an interesting shape. It's a kidney-shaped sea. Uh, If we look at it, it's 14 miles by 6 miles. And the oddity, of course, that we've mentioned before is that it is 682 feet below sea level. And so here's here's the coastline, and here's the Sea of Galilee. It's a little bit lower in its elevation, which meant lots of storms. But that's a story for another day. What we find here is that seas mean fishing. Fishing was a large part of the Galilean economy, thanks to the Sea of Galilee, as well as, as you might imagine, being a large part of the diet of the people who lived in this, around the Sea of Galilee. And while Jesus is there, it says, Mark notes that he saw Simon and Andrew. And we, of course, Simon and Andrew are brothers. And what they're doing is they're casting a net into the sea, As it notes, they're not just guys on on a Saturday trying to fulfill their hobby, but they are vocationally fishermen. And so they had these round nets, uh, similar to what we see right there, that are weighted around the edges, and you kind of throw them in. They sink to the bottom, uh, catching fish as they go down, and then you pull the rope and drag it back up, and you have, hopefully, dinner as well as some stuff to sell to other people so you can buy things like sandals and cloth and uh, wheat, grain, other stuff. No, you have fish. You're selling your fish. (laughs) But you might have to fix your net, okay? So these men are fishermen. Is that whom you would choose to be the first two people that you single out to join you on your empire-building project. It's certainly not the person I would choose. I'd probably pick someone who was a wise counselor, someone who's a good bodyguard and a leader of men to lead my army, people like that. Jesus, 
fishermen. But he identifies them while they're busy at their work. There's some diligence there. But let's get back to this. They're just regular guys. And we see that he identifies two more people that Jesus sees. Jacob, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. And Yes, I said Jacob. <laughs> he might be confused. Because when you read the... The English translations, what it says is James. If you read the Greek, it says Jacob. Why we translate Jacob to James in every instance except for, you know, Jacob the patriarch is beyond me. <laughs> I'm not sure why we have this little oddity, maybe because we know that Jacob as a Jacob, and if we started calling him James, everybody would be confused, but we call everyone else James. This is one of those interesting things for, it's sort of like this. The Bible, okay, this, the Greek here is transliterating, basically, the Hebrew. So then we go from Hebrew into Latin, then uh, cover Lucette's ears, uh, it goes into French, and that's where we start. It starts sounding more like James. And, it go, and then it goes into the English as James as opposed to Jacob. It's a weird little rabbit trail for us this morning. Um, it's Jacob. Jacob and John. These two sons of Zebedee. So Jesus identifies two sets of brothers, two sets of fishermen. Steve Jobs was wise from a worldly perspective. He chose the five-star businessman who was the youngest VP in the history of Mexico to lead his business. Jesus, four fishermen. Fishermen. Ordinary people. So ordinary, in fact, that in Acts chapter 4, when the Sanhedrin interviews them, it says this, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. And so these were not sort of um, Fortune 500 guys who were on a, on a, on a fishing trip in their spare time, these were, as it says, uneducated, common men, not the people you would ordinarily think you're going to build a kingdom with. But I want us to stop with that. I want us to recognize that Jesus builds his kingdom with ordinary people. Jesus does not build his kingdom with experts. He does not build them with specialists. He does not build them with the elite. That's what worldly kingdoms are built on, but that is not what the kingdom of God is built on. It is built primarily, of course, upon Jesus, but he uses ordinary people, people like you. Because you're probably, in some ways, just like Peter, John, Jacob, Andrew. Ordinary people. You might be a little more educated than them, but you're an ordinary, you're a common person. What this means in part is, is that if Jesus calls you, 
It means he values you. Not simply for what you offer, but for you. Now this week, um, I sat through a lot of recitals. And I was excited because I got to see the progress of my children and their chosen areas of, uh, you know, arts. Okay? But you know what brought my heart more joy than seeing their progress in the arts was seeing one of them congratulate other people on the job they did. That's about character. That's what concerns me as a parent. Uh, I'm not trying to raise all A students um, for kids, and most of us as parents value our children for who they are, not valuing them for the report card they get or the fact that they maybe got a home run that day uh, playing baseball. It's not about their performances. It's about them. We take the performance as a bonus, so to speak. Uh, but Jesus here is, you know, Mark is communicating that Jesus cared about the person, not necessarily what they had to offer to further his kingdom. And we'll see why in just a moment. But Jesus chooses ordinary people to enter his kingdom. This leads me to a second kind of question. What does he call them to do? You see, Mark is, is ignoring the earlier interactions that Jesus had with uh, Peter and Andrew, and John, and Jacob. If you want to see those, you can go to the early parts of John's gospel. What, he, what Mark is focused on, and what he wants his Roman audience to hear, is the call of Jesus to these men. He wants them to place themselves, in a sense, in the shoes of these four men, and hear those words, follow me. This is a difficult construction because he's using an idiom. It's, there's no verb that's found in here. We would, we would imagine you know, if, uh, that this would be a verb and a verb in an imperative or a command form. No verb. Basically, it's an idiom of fall in behind me, uh, sort of like what happens, and I should have gotten a picture, but when the ducklings fall in behind mom duck. Jesus is saying, get in behind me. And go where I go. Do what I do. Watch and learn. What's fascinating about this is that in that day and in that time, if you were a young man who wanted to be discipled, you would go and you would find a rabbi and you would, you would say to him, please let me be your disciple. Okay, You're initiating the relationship. You've identified someone that you think is someone you want to learn from. And so you're saying, please take me as your disciple. We find the exact opposite here. These men are fishing. They are fishermen. They think this is their lot in life. This is all they're ever going to do. And they're probably content with that to some degree. Okay? And here comes Jesus, who says, be my disciple. That's not the way this is... I'm surprised they didn't say that to him. Jesus, that's not the way this is supposed to work. But they didn't, thankfully. 
Okay? Fall in behind me. Jesus is, is, has pursued them and he calls them into following him. Sinclair Ferguson notes in, uh, when he looks at this, he says that what Mark is doing here is showing us what faith and repentance mean. And so uh, the faith and repentance mean getting in line behind Jesus and going where he goes, going where he leads as he goes down the paths of righteousness. As I mentioned in my prayers earlier, he is the captain of our salvation. He is the trailblazer, and we walk in the path that he blazes for us. But note this. Follow me. Not follow my rules. Not follow my plan for action. He's not... uh, um, Robins with some plan for success for your life, okay, or any of the other self-help guru guys. Jesus is calling them to himself. It's follow me. He's asking for a personal commitment to him, not simply to rules, not simply to ideas, not to the seven plans for a better life, to him. We see almost the opposite of this in the movie Braveheart. As William Wallace struggles with the fact that, that all of these people are following him in this quest for freedom, he wants them to follow the nobles, and he has that conversation with Robert the Bruce. If you would only lead them, they would follow you. They were in love with an idea. And for them, William Wallace captured that, or encapsulated that idea. And so they followed him. Jesus is drawing them by the power of his message as well as the power of his person. But they must follow him. And he says... These strange words, it's a little different from what we find in the other Gospels. I will make you become fishers of men. That, that is an odd sentence, is it not? Okay. I will make you become fishers of men. And so the weight of this is upon Jesus. He's going to make them something they aren't. And they're going to become it. Because of his work in them, they're going to become this thing that they weren't. And that thing is a fisher of men. Now, to a degree, this is driven by the fact that they were fishermen. If they worked at Raytheon, perhaps Jesus would have said, I will make you become builders of men. But it's also driven by some of the biblical imagery that we find in other places. In the Old Testament, fishing is often used as a picture of judgment. Uh, We see that in our reading uh, from Jeremiah 16. uh, And we saw that when we were looking at Habakkuk not too long ago in the first chapter of Habakkuk. I will make... Uh, you make mankind like fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings them all up with a hook and drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet, so he rejoices 
and is glad. And that was meant to be a picture of the judgment upon the southern kingdom, Judah, by the Babylonians. And so in the Old Testament, fishing is really uh, tied up with the judgment of God. And I can still hear in my head uh, the voice of my, my Greek professor and um, New Testament professor, Dr. Mawinney, go, eschatological fish fry. <laughs> Gathering them in for the big fire that's going to take place. Um, but what Jesus does is he utilizes this, but the disciples that he's gathering, that he's calling, are not going to be um, bringing judgment, but they're going to be rescuing people from judgment. Uh, they're going to be delivering people from this fish fry, so to speak. Jesus reverses the imagery from the Old Testament. And so what we find here is that Jesus is going to prepare and he's going to train these men who follow him to do ministry in his name. Steve Jobs was inviting John Scully to change the world. Jesus is inviting these men to join him in changing the world. Uh, Not just by marketing a new product, but by bringing people into a relationship with God and and bringing them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's what he's doing. Jesus is calling these four men to himself, and what's different from most of us is he's calling them also to an office. But we have to recognize that all Christians who are called to Jesus are also called to serve him, even if they aren't in office, even if they aren't officers, uh, elders or deacons. You cannot say, I'm not called to serve Jesus because I'm a woman. And woman, women can't be officers. No, you're still called to follow Jesus and to be engaged in ministry. And if you're a man who is not for you know called to be an, an elder or deacon, don't worry, you're still called to serve. Jesus calls us not simply to enjoy the public ministry, to receive the public ministry, but Jesus also calls us to receive the personal ministry that is found in what we call discipleship. To be personally committed to Christ means that we are willing to sit and listen to be trained to do ministry. It's not simply about learning theology and and learning uh, the Bible. It includes that, certainly, but it doesn't stop there, as we're going to see. What discipleship really seems to be is sort of, as some people, 
I can't remember who initially expressed it this way. It's lost in the vast the small resources of my mind. But the idea of kneading bread, working dough. And so discipleship is working the gospel into the dough of your life. So that it begins, the gospel begins to change everything about you. It begins to change your character. It begins to change your approaches to parenting. It begins to change your approach to work. It begins to change your approach to marriage, to being a child of others. In other words, as Jesus says in the Great Commission, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Discipleship is helping people to learn how to obey everything he has commanded, not just to know what he has commanded. And so discipleship really is about life transformation so that you are able to transform lives. Okay? First, you must become a fisher of men, so to speak, so that you are and then fish men and then train them to become fishers of men or builders of men. And so Jesus calls these ordinary people to follow and to serve him, which leads me to another question as I ponder this. Uh, how did they respond, and what does it mean to follow Jesus? A little more, perhaps. We see that there are similar responses from the two sets of brothers to Jesus' command, his uh, kind of oddly constructed command from our perspective. We see of uh, Peter and Andrew, immediately they left their nets and followed him. They responded immediately. Now, I don't know exactly when John Scully responded. Maybe he took a few days to think it over. But John Scully left PepsiCo and joined Steve Jobs at Apple with the desire to change the world. And so these men have left with the intention of becoming fishers of men. They recognized that they could not follow Jesus and continue their vocation as fishermen. And so in this particular instance, Jesus is calling them to change their vocation. He does not call all people to change their vocation. And some of you may have just breathed a slight sigh of relief. I don't know. But again, there's a difference between those who serve as officers or pastors and those who serve as engineers and accountants, teachers, uh, and other vocations, okay? Ordinary people who are called to Christ but not to vocational ministry often can and should remain in the jobs that they are found in, so to speak. John the baptizer affirmed legitimate vocations, two vocations in particular that, that some Christians have a problem with. One, for instance, tax collector. If you go on Reformed Pub, one of their favorite sayings is taxation is theft. And you would think that John the baptizer would have said to the tax collectors, 
quit your job. No, he doesn't say that. He says to them, collect no more than you are authorized to do. Stop abusing your position to enrich yourself. Soldiers. There are some Christians who think that uh, Christians should not be soldiers or policemen because they bear arms. But John the Baptizer does not say, you must leave the military. He says, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. Recognize the power that you have over people and don't abuse it, but serve for their good. John says. And so, for Christians who have legitimate callings, you are to rethink not what you do, but how you do it and why you do it. Following Jesus changes how you work. We move from a a love of self and absorption, absorption with self. How much am I earning? What is my position and my status? Uh, I've got to move up that, 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 the organizational chart because, you know, I want to be able to have the perks that John Scully has or Steve Jobs had. We, Jesus shifts us from that mentality to how can I love my neighbor? How can I serve my neighbor in the midst of this job? Because some people have mind-numbingly boring jobs. But they're serving their neighbor. The guy who collects the trash. You drive the same route every week. And all you do is you drive up next to some stuff now and you press a button and it lifts this thing and drops it in. And then eventually when your route is done, you drive to the depot and you back up the truck and... But that can be an act of love because garbage has to go somewhere. It's important, even though we might not recognize it for the importance it has. And so instead of thinking, I can't believe I just get paid this money, I want more, thinking about, I keep my city clean so that people can thrive. It's a better way at looking at things. Moms are not maids. That sometimes they look a lot like maids because a lot of what they do is the same as what a maid would do. But a maid doesn't generally do it because she loves the people she serves. But a mom does it because generally she loves the people she serves. She wants her children to have clean clothes. She wants her children to have uh, good food to eat and sometimes even loves her husband and wants them to have these things. Okay, But it's Mother's Day, so I'm focusing on the children. Wants them to, to not be tripping over things in the hallway and falling down the stairs. And so she works in a way that looks similar to a maid but is far grander because it's driven by love that's often not reciprocated yet. One day it will be. Hang on, moms. Okay. But there are some people who do have illegitimate jobs. 
jobs that are immoral and that Christians should quit. They should leave. Uh, there's, there's no place for a Christian pimp. There's no place for a Christian drug pusher. There's no place for a Christian thief. They are intended to leave those things. In fact, Paul spells that out in Ephesians chapter 4. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so that he might have something to share with anyone who's in need. And so Paul, with an application of the gospel, says there's certain vocations that are illegitimate that are because they're immoral, and the Christian should stop doing those and find something that is honorable to do. Not only for his own needs, but so that here's where love comes in again, so that he can share with people who have needs. Okay, that's Peter and Andrew. What about Jacob and John? Mark says, they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and followed him. Two things I want to note here. In the boat seemed to be their father Zebedee. Also with him are the hired hands or the servants, hirelings. Which means that unlike Peter and Andrew, uh, their father was a little more successful and employed people. And they're the heirs to the family business. And so they're not just leaving their job, they're leaving the family business. That was not something that was done as easily then as it is now. That's an honor culture. You are intended to honor your father and mother. And for you to strike out on your own like this on the whim of some some traveling itinerant rabbi that no one has heard of at this point, to follow him who knows where, sort of like Abraham, right? You don't know where he's going to go and what he's going to do, but you go. That's scandalous. Their community probably looked down their noses at Jacob and John because they dishonored their father and their mother, and they left a good-paying job, by the way. Faith and repentance can be met with Sometimes rejection from family. We don't know how Zebedee responded to this, but there are some people who have become Christians, have decided to follow Jesus, and they are rejected by their families, not they're rejecting their families. Now, when I say that, they were not rejecting Zebedee, they were just following Jesus. Okay? They, they were not saying, my dad is an evil man, I want nothing to do with him whatsoever, but what they're saying is, Jesus is a little more important than dad and the, the fishing business. In other words, their allegiance to Jesus exceeded the allegiance to any person or institution. Jesus came first. And so we saw from Matthew 19, but we see as well from Luke 14, that there are people who, and, and this is hyperbole, so to speak, that, that hate their own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, in fact, even their own lives, to be disciples of Jesus. 
This is not to be taken in terms of, I hate you, mom and dad, but in terms of, I love and I love less. But it looks like hate when you're the person that's loved less. It feels like rejection when Jacob and John walk away from Zebedee. He probably went home to his wife and cried. said, my children must hate me because this guy named Jesus showed up, said, follow me, and there they went without a second thought. Faith can be costly. The, the decisions that result from coming to faith and exhibiting repentance it can look very strange to other people. Very painful in many ways. Tim Keller, in one of his sermons, talks about how Jesus can't ask too much. And by that, what he means is all of salvation is by grace. So I owe Jesus everything. Which means Jesus can ask anything of me. If salvation was partly by my merit, then I can start to say to Jesus, you can ask this far, but no farther. These things are sort of off limits to you uh, because of my contribution to my salvation. Okay. But you have no contribution besides your sin to your salvation. And so Jesus can ask anything of you. Now, it's going to be shaped by his character. That's going to be shaped by his wisdom. It's going to be shaped by his love for his people. And so he will not ask anything of you that will destroy you, even though you might feel like it's going to destroy you at particular points in time. But we owe him all, and he owes us nothing. But sometimes we think of it the other way. <laughs> like we owe him nothing and he owes us everything. How does this function? John Newton talks about the reality, you know, that it's reciprocal love that makes the yoke of Jesus light. Meaning this, if we recognize how much He has loved us, and the measure of that love is going to the cross to bear our sin, that's how great His love is for us. And so now we love Him back. That makes the service we do light, bearable, dare I say, even enjoyable. Because we know from our core we are loved 
And therefore, we are doing this service out of love. And it's similar to a mom. She may not know she's loved yet. Hopefully she's, she knows she's loved by her husband because he's saying that on a regular basis and demonstrating it. But, but she has this love from God and therefore she loves her children. And so even though there's always more trash to take out and laundry to do and meals to cook, she continues to serve. And that's how we serve Jesus. It's a very similar thing. Knowing you are loved, you serve in love. Not just Jesus directly, but Jesus' people as well. When you lose sight of the love, that's when you're going to burn out. When you lose sight of the love, that's when you're going to grow bitter. When you lose sight of the love, that's when you're going to throw it all down and walk away. And so it's important to keep your eyes on the love. To fix your eyes on Jesus who went to the cross for you. It's also important to remember who Jesus is as we serve, and in the things we've already seen, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the, the Messiah who has come, that Jesus is the one who went toe-to-toe with Satan and kept standing. This Jesus is the Jesus we serve. And not only do we serve, but we are strengthened by that Jesus to serve. He not only calls us, but He empowers us and strengthens us to do what He asks. And so following Jesus means that He comes first. Period. End of sentence. And so if we were to wrap all this stuff up in these three things that I've talked about, we would see that Jesus calls ordinary people to follow and serve Him, and I should have said, out of love for Him. So add that in there. He calls ordinary people like you and me to follow and serve Him because He first loved us and now we love Him. So, John Scully heard Steve Jobs' challenge to come change the world instead of selling sugared water, and he did leave PepsiCo to join Apple, and he did, in many ways, change the world. While his relationship with Steve Jobs did not last, it was rather tumultuous, and Jobs ended up leaving, um, his impact on Apple was astounding. In a decade, their sales went from... 982 million, okay, that's million with an M, to 7.9 billion with a B in a decade. A B. Yeah, not a bzzz B, but the letter B. Okay, that was a D. That's a B. Okay. And... They helped fulfill what the dream was of not just Steve Jobs, but also Bill Gates of a computer in every home. Anybody own a, a Mac? 
Anybody own an iPhone? Anybody own an iPod? Yeah, they're kind of passe now because everyone's got them on their phones. But there's some stubborn resistance over there, I see. <laughs> but they help, they change the world in a significant way, but nothing like the way that Peter, Andrew, Jacob, and John changed the world. Because they didn't just give people um, phones to look at the Bible readings on. They gave a Savior, in a sense. They gave knowledge of the Savior that people might come out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of God's beloved Son and enjoy every spiritual blessing in Jesus Christ. And so if you think that the church's call for you to serve is about dishing out refreshments um, or dealing with children who don't want to listen in Sunday school or whatever it is you think it might be, really what it is, it's facilitating a process of people changing from the kingdom of darkness to, into the kingdom of His Son and making them builders of men. That's what it's about. We need to pray. Father, thank you that Jesus came. Thank you that in addition to dying and rising again for our sins, Jesus called these men, ordinary men, to this work, and Jesus made them suitable for the work he called them to. It's not something that they had in and of themselves. And this same Jesus takes us and makes us suitable for the work that he calls us to do. Help us to hear that call, not just to the public ministry and sitting under it, but also the personal ministry of Jesus, the one-on-one discipleship. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.